This is the J. Scott Outdoors podcast on Western big game hunting and fishing, and I'm your host, J. Scott. I live and breathe hunting and fishing, spending half the year in the field enjoying God's creation. I hope you'll enjoy hearing about our adventures. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have a, a guest that's a good friend of mine, David Barasco from The Hunting Fool, and uh, also David is a uh, the outfitter and head guide at North Rim Outfitters. David, how are you doing today? Great. How are you doing, Jay? Just uh, pretty good. Um, you know, today being March 1st, uh, kind of getting ready and excited for uh, thinking about the fall. Um, what kind of moisture have you guys been getting up there uh, in this last storm? You know what? It was actually, I was actually starting to get nervous. It was really dry for a while, but last Monday, I got 10, over 10 inches at my house of snow in, in Kanab, Utah, and I'm looking out my window right now, and it's still coming down, so I think we're going to be in great shape. That's awesome, and uh, David, uh, uh, why don't you tell some of my listeners that don't know you a little bit about yourself. Um, uh, you and I have been friends for some time, uh, and I've known you uh, originally uh, when you were working with Ryan Hatch over at Muley Crazy. And uh, just uh, give my listeners a little bit of background on you and what you got going on. Sure. Um, you know, I've uh, lived in central and southern Utah since the late 80s. Um, my mom moved me and my two brothers to Richfield, Utah. Um, I think it was about 1989. Shortly after, she remarried a great guy. Um, he was kind of an avid archery hunter and I had a bow in my hand before I could even blink. <laughs> um, yeah. Back then, you know, we had to we had to wait till we were 14 years old to hunt big game. But the minute I turned 12, we were always chasing chuckers, pine hens, you know, ducks, geese, pheasants, whatever was in season. Um, and then once I got my driver's license, <laughs> the world expanded beyond anything I could ever imagine. <laughs> you know, um, my dad is a really simple hunter. Um, my, my stepdad, I, I call him dad, sure. but uh, he's extremely dedicated, but doesn't really, he never really left the nest much, um, you know, he, he never applied out of state or really ventured to see if the grass was greener on the other side of the hill, but but he instilled in me the basics of hunting, fishing, and the outdoors, and uh, the passion I have now in my personal hunting career stems directly from those basics that he instilled me when I was 10. So, you know, like many other hunters out there, I owe pretty much everything to a great man who took the time to share his passion with a young, hung, hungry, and, you know. Yeah, you know. yeah and I, I think that's um, evident in your life as well. I, I follow you on uh, Instagram and on Facebook, and we talk every once in a while, and it's obvious that, uh, you know, you're getting your own kids in, in hunting and fishing and um it, it seems as though they enjoy the outdoors, so it's it's nice to see you passing that on, uh, that tradition that we love so much. Uh, uh, tell me what it's like to to share some of that with your kids. Oh, it's awesome. I mean, you know, and <clears throat> subliminally, I think you know we do it because without that recruitment, we we don't have a future as hunters or or uh, conservationists or anything, anybody that loves the outdoors or or you know hunting as a whole so yeah. i mean it's awesome you know it's not i don't really look at it like i i take time to do it it's just a way of life for us and so you know like i say i'm extremely grateful for my stepdad for doing what he did with me and my brothers when we were growing up and um he he developed a 
lifestyle. Not it, it's just how it is. My kids don't know any different than to go set traps in December and to go ice fishing when it's cold and, you know, go up on the mountain when the leaves are changing. So, you know, it's awesome. And I think, like, you know, I mean, there's a lot that can be learned, not about hunting, but about life, about us as human beings, just by experiencing those things, you know, and passing it on. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, kudos for you for uh, getting, getting them involved. And, um, David, you serve as a hunting consultant uh, for the Hunting Fool magazine. Uh, give, give me a little breakdown on what you do, kind of everyday life there um, at Hunting Fool, and and uh, what you encounter each day at your job. Sure, um, you know what what the Hunting Fool provides. You know, and it's funny that you ask that question because it's we've I've always tried to put my finger on what exactly the Hunting Fool provides because there's so much. It's hard to wrap it up in a one-line slogan or but basically what we do is provide the information the data everything you need to maximize your current and future hunting desires goals career whatever it is um, we have seven full-time consultants on hand that instead of all of us specializing everywhere we each have our own little niche and we each lean on each other and it's it's a really dynamic team of guys uh jeff warren one of you know i I remember jeff when i was a kid when when he was running bucks and bulls outfitters you know i mean um i've looked up to jeff forever and he there's very few people that have been in the industry as long as he has and has the knowledge and the connections that he has um we've got a couple guys out of montana a couple guys out of utah i mean and we all have a different passion. So um, what we do is um, provide a monthly publication that we research all the statistical data needed to so that you have the most current information on current regulations, um, cost of tags, draw odds, available tags, if they shut the unit down, if they open a new unit up, what we personally feel about those units in our comments section. So it gives you a better feel, and basically we do the homework for you. Um, Even the DIY guys out there that like to do their own applications rely on that magazine we provide because we condense the proclamation from year to year, the different states' hunting regulations from year to year, and it's right there in the palm of your hand every month. So on top of that magazine, we also do one-on-one consulting um, for our premium members. You can call in and talk to me and my six colleagues and ask us anything you want. We'll give you the honest answer. We'll give you the honest truth. If we don't know, the one thing I love about the Hunt and Fool is if we don't know, we're not afraid to say I don't know, but we'll find out. Um, if it's a phone call back or an email back, we'll get it figured out and get you the answer you're looking for. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been... Uh... I've been a member of Hunt and Fool. It's probably been at least 10 years. And, um, you know, I look forward to getting the magazine every month and uh, look forward to uh, seeing all the great hunting stories and uh, seeing a lot of the great information uh, about each state. And, uh, you know, I don't put in for every Western state, but I put in for a lot of them. And uh, it seems like that it's been a very valuable tool over the years. Um, David, you also own and operate uh, North Rim Outfitters, which um, I believe guides primarily in Utah and in Arizona. Um, Give me a little bit of background uh, on your guiding operation, uh, North Rim Outfitters, and and how they can contact you through North Rim Outfitters. Sure. Um, 
Yeah, I've uh, owned and operated Northrum Outfitters since oh, the early 2000s. You know, I I want to say it was 2003 when we officially hung a shingle out there. Um, but we've been been I worked with some for and with some of the other great outfitters in the state of Utah. You know, um, for I don't know since the late 90s. So um, we primarily uh, specialize in central and southern Utah for deer, elk, and sheep. Um, we do have a small operation in northern Utah for moose hunts and, and the Rockies that are up there as well. Um, and we also, I live right on the border of Arizona. Canab's just smack dab right on the line. And so it's hard not to go run south and play on the Arizona Strip when we get a chance. So we outfit uh, in northern Arizona, central and southern Utah. Awesome, awesome. And David, uh, uh, I know I know you personally, so I probably know the answer to this question. But uh, <laughs> out, out of all those animals that 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 you hunt and guide for, I, I I think it's funny when people ask when my wife and I are in a you know a mixed setting, and someone says, "Well, Jay, what do you like to hunt the most?" My wife always laughs because she she her answer is always you know, whatever animal is in season at that time is my favorite. But do you have a specific animal that, you know, just takes the cake as far as uh, being your favorite animal to hunt or and or guide for? Oh, yeah. You know, and, and like you said, you know the answer to this. But hands down, unequivocally, I mean, second place is not even close to mule deer for me. Yeah. I mean, it's been my yeah. passion since I was a kid and it always will be. You know, I've killed elk, antelope, lions, bears, turkeys with my own tags across the West. And I've killed the same animals with clients as well as sheep, mountain goat, moose. And, and I've enjoyed every single one of those adventures. But mule deer will always have my undivided attention, always. There's just something about mule deer that I think seems to captivate every hunter who grew up out here in the West. You know, because it's funny, working at the hunting pool has really opened my eyes. Uh, a lot to what the masses really want to come hunt and by the masses I mean the guys east of the Mississippi you know the guys who have always wanted to hunt out west and experience the adventure of what we have to offer and uh you know amazingly to me I I was shocked because it's it's really not mule deer they they want to come out out west and hunt elk they want to hear those screams and see a rut crazed bull with a herd of cows just commanding a hillside and I guess to them, that's what the Wild West, you know, represents, a big old dirty bull bugling his guts out. But, you know, to many of us who grew up out here, the icon of the West is mule deer. And I I don't know. I, It's funny because I've been thinking about that a lot the last 12 months because I don't know what the reason for that really is. Um, growing up in Utah, I had the opportunity to hunt mule deer every single year. I could shoot as big a buck as we could find. But the general season elk hunting here in Utah is primarily spike only. Um, and so, and don't get me wrong, I love killing spikes too, but, um, you know, while I might, and I say that really tentatively, I might have a chance someday to hunt a big bull in my own state with my own tag. I have ample opportunity to hunt bucks every year. And I think to me, that's why, um, you know, guys out West have such a deep passion, um, for mule deer. Um, you know, I think, it's a more subliminal reasoning reasoning as to why people love big bucks out here, as opposed to the obvious reason that mule deer are just so awesome of an animal to hunt. But you know, so I don't know. I mean, mule deer will just always they'll always be my favorite animal to hunt with clients and for myself. So, 
Yeah, and and most of your mule deer hunting, uh, you grew up hunting uh, all around Richfield in Utah, and and uh, were those were those general tags statewide, or did you have to stay uh, in certain areas? Um, that that's a question I've I've always wondered. You know, it's it's funny because it's evolved. It, looking back, when you stop and think about it, it's evolved drastically. You know, since I've been able to hunt since '92. You know, I think is when I had my first deer tag. Um, that very first year, they had it set up where you bought a deer tag and you could archery, rifle, and the muzzleloader hunts were even in November. You could hunt all three seasons till you killed the deer. Um, you know, and it was actually three pointer better that first year. You couldn't shoot a buck unless it was three pointer better. And I mean, like I said, my how the times have changed because now it's there's so much. When anytime there's more demand than there is supply, you know, they have you have to tweak and you have to. You have to modify, and you can either hang it up or just roll with the punches, but things are a lot different now. Um, some of those general season units that uh, that I grew up hunting are, one of them's a limited entry unit now, or and, and one was, and now it's general season again. So, I mean, the state of Utah has always been, I think, really proactive in trying to modify what's best for, um, I don't know. I, I want to say for the deer, but I also want to say, you know, truthfully for the pocketbook and so i mean that's i think they do a fair job at meeting in the middle somewhere but the times have really changed and now there's different there's a couple different programs for our general seasons in utah um you can apply for a general season tag um you can uh, join what we call our dedicated hunter program which there are some uh stipulations to be involved in that program uh, one of them is donating service hours 32 service hours uh, within a three-year period, um, it costs a little bit more money, but you you get a guaranteed tag with the Dedicated Hunter Program, which allows you to hunt deer for three years. Now you can only kill two deer within that three-year period. So if you kill a deer the first year and the second year, you're riding the pine that third year. But if you're kind of picky, then you can kill a deer that second, third year in the program. The biggest bonus to the Dedicated Hunter Program is that you're allowed to hunt all three seasons. So you can archery, muzzleload, and rifle, which is for the guy who just wants to go hunting every year and doesn't want to worry about drawing a tag, it's a it's a definite plus. So uh, that's awesome. You know, um, David. Uh, so that that allows you to hunt deer every year, almost every year. Um, what is it this time of year? You're obviously probably getting ready for shed season. Um, what are you doing right now in preparation for next year's deer season um, and, and over the next coming couple of months in the off season? What are you doing? Well, you know, it's funny because uh, the the Ponsigant deer herd, for example, where I live, it's a it's one of the a lot of deer herds migrate, but but this deer herd is special and it's migration because. It doesn't migrate because of weather, doesn't migrate because of rut, doesn't migrate because of feed. They migrate because their mamas told them to when they were babies, and they migrate a long ways in a short period of time. So it makes it really frustrating uh, as an outfitter and a guide um, because this happens right around the muzzleloader and rifle season. So I don't care who you are. When they start migrating, you might as well wipe that slate clean because you're going to start from scratch if you don't do some winter scouting and it sounds kind of weird a lot of guys like to go out on the winter range and and go look at deer and take pictures of deer and get ready to pick up sheds but we actually scout in the winter like we run, we run cameras and we go out and actually scout because if we can find that buck on the winter range 
Odds are we might have seen him earlier that year in the summer, but if we haven't, we're going to look for him. And if we have point A and point B, we can typically have a really good guess of where they're going to migrate because of where they were located. And it puts a really slight advantage for our hunters on the muzzleloader and rifle seasons when that migration occurs. And it's paid off, you know, I mean, it's paid off multiple times. So, I mean, we, we scout a lot in the winter down here, um, you know. And when you say winter, David, uh, specify which months are you talking about? You know, December through about right now, middle of March. Um, but we, we put a lot of emphasis on the last week of November to right before Christmas because of the rut. Because even those big old dirty bucks, they'll, they'll come out and rut and we'll see them. And we might find their sheds in March or something, but we might not have seen them for two months and they're still right there. So that's our best time to see what lived through the the hunts, get a good idea where they were rutting, where they're probably going to shed, so we can kind of point, you know, have point A back in the velvet. So um, that leads me to my next question of circling back to what you just said brings up a great point. So you're basically trying to con- connect two common points where you've seen the bucks and try and connect those points through judging and, and guessing where their travel corridor might be so that when those late November hunts and such hit or mid-November hunts hit, you will be in the right place, hopefully at the right time. Yes, sir. Yep. I mean, that's like I say, I think that's what is at least on the Ponsignan, I know that's what sets us above anybody else that guides and outfits down here. And I, I say that humbly. I don't like to come across as being the best, but we have a huge advantage. Um, you know, I live here. I mean, we, and it's, you know, it's, I say it to people all the time, but myself and the guides who work for me, especially the ones that live in Canab, I mean, we literally scout more on accident than most guys do on purpose just for one simple reason. We live here. We love, sure. we love what we do. We're proud of what we do. And there's no better feeling in the world than sending a client home with an animal that smashes what they had as far as expectations. And so like, whether it's just after church, you know, going out for a drive or, or, uh, setting traps or whatever it is we're spending so much time on this unit particularly that i mean it's it's a huge huge advantage against uh what other guys that come down here and guide an outfit do you know they'll they'll scout their guts out and they'll a lot of a couple of the guys have, have done it long enough now you know decade is what i'm talking about that they understand the migrations and things and so they'll go sit those areas but i'm trying to think in the last five years you know, the five biggest bucks we've killed have been in five different places on the unit. They're never just right here, right here, right here, you know, so. So it's not like there's one specific honey hole. It's more like specifically for that buck, there's a honey hole for that buck, and you've been able to be in the right place at the right time on that particular buck. Yes, exactly. So. And, and David, in talking about your successes um, on the Pontagon, um, give me an idea and, you know, um, maybe inches, uh, in width, give me, give me some of the bucks over the last, say five, whatever years, uh, you know, what kind of bucks have your clients been killing? Um, you know, the best buck we've ever killed on the Ponsagant score wise was just a touch over 222. Um, we killed, I've killed two giant typicals um, that have netted over 200 on the Ponsagant, one of them netting 207 and, and on that buck in particular, it was far from just a one-man show. There was a lot of key guys involved. Um, you know, Ryan was there. Um, another Canab resident, Tory Brock, was there. So, I mean, it was it was with a special tag. So, I mean, 
a lot and, and and touching on that too you know a lot of this stuff you know it doesn't work without a good team so i don't want to ever get up on a pedestal and say you know look at me Absolutely. because the you know i might be the guy that's doing the phone calls and a lot and a lot of the time in the field with some of those guys but it's not just me there's a lot of good guys so um absolutely we, absolutely yeah and and knowing you and knowing how humble you are uh i i can speak for you in that it's it's it is a team effort you are fantastic at what you do but uh you know, you, it, you're never shy of giving credit where credit is due. Yeah. Um, we, you know, but going back to that too, we always seem to kill a couple over the magical 200 inch mark a year. Uh, last last year, the best buck we killed was 212 on the rifle hunt. We actually missed him a couple times on the archery hunt. <laughs> and wow. So, um, but we, you know, and we kill several over several other bucks over 180. Um, I think the widest buck we killed a 35 inch wide typical one year that was awesome. So, I mean, it's there's uh, like I say I, I'm blessed to live right where I live and to be around the caliber of bucks that are here. Yeah, I mean you can just hear it in your voice, the passion you have for it. Um, it what uh, season would you say is your favorite, or is it matter of just get a tag on the Ponsagant and, and it, they each have their own, uh, you know, uh, unique characteristics? No, on the Ponsagant. I mean, yeah. any other unit, I'd just say get a tag and let's go hunt. But the Ponsagon is really, um, it's really, it, it, one hunt stands above the other two, and that's the archery hunt. Um, without without question, it's the archery hunt. I love the archery hunt way more than the muzzle and the rifle hunt. The archery hunt, I can find a deer, I can pattern him, and I can kill him because he's up there. Uh, like we talked about earlier with the migration, um, it makes it tough. And they, and they usually start around that first week of october second week of october they pick up and leave our muzzleloader like this year the muzzleloader hunt will actually be pretty good because the dates are september 23rd through october 1st i believe and so before they move them. yeah yep they're gonna split up and get out of their bachelor groups and rub up and and be a little bit tougher to locate because of that but they're still going to be there somewhere um and the rifle hunt starts october 17th and i think goes to the 25th this year so I think that hunt's going to be the toughest of the three this year. Um, but going back to the original question, the archery hunt is hands down my favorite hunt to to guide. Um, in fact, I should, with the points I have this year, if I'm lucky enough, I'll have a tag of my own. But um, That's awesome. You know, um, so what what I hear you saying is from a predictability standpoint, the archery's the best because those are resident bucks that you know are there. You know exactly where they eat, where they sleep where they feed yep. everything that they do, whereas the rifle hunt in, in, in late October, uh, mid-October, um, is that correct, the rifle hunt? Or you're, you're saying the muzzleloader hunts uh, before October 1st or it's at the end of September. Yeah. That's also predictable. But the rifle hunt can be very good. The later hunt can be good, but it's the predictability is kind of out of the question, and it becomes more of just uh, – uh, knowing kind of where to be yep. and and trying to predict where which pocket to be in, but not necessarily, you know, you may see a new buck you've never seen, right? Right, and that's you know, but I, I'm a lot like you, Jay, where I like to go hunt particular animals. I like to kill particular animals. I don't mind just going hunting either, but I love having purpose, you know. And so um, normally on that rifle hunt, we normally on that rifle hunt we'll have ten uh, percent purpose and 90% let's just go hunting and the archery hunt is 100% purpose we're going to go hunt this buck we're going to kill this buck the muzzleloader hunt now next year 
I don't think you could give me a muzzleloader hunter next year because those dates are going to roll and it it is going to be smack dab in the middle of when the most of the deer start migrating and man that's just tough it's really really tough so not saying you know it can't be done but it's just it will be a tough tough muzzleloader hunt in 2016 on the pond scout for sure so is the Pontagant back? I mean, I know, tell me when the glory years of the Pontagant were, and then there was a rough patch when the Pontagant was uh, way down, deer numbers and such, and is it back, David? Nah, I don't think so. You know, I really don't. I, you know, I think, I think. When when was the heyday? The late, you know, mid to late 80s, you know, and I, I hear, you know, working with Ryan for 11 years, I heard story after story of just, I'm like, God, oh, you had it easy back when you were running guys around here, just always giving him crap. But no, I mean the late '80s, um, mid to late '80s was the heydays for sure. Uh, early '90s was awesome, and then it just they started issuing too many tags, and we just started killing our recruitment, you know. And and it's a tough road to hoe once you do that. I mean, one slaughter year, you got to think about that. You kill a, a age class off that you probably shouldn't have. You've got to wait for a bumper crop of fawns to come that have good buck numbers, and they've got to reach four or five years old. So it's not like it's just going to recover overnight or even year to year. So um, I think with today's day, today's social media and electronic world, I think a lot of the top-end bucks get showcased and everybody sees them. So it seems like the unit's back. It seems like things are awesome. But in all reality – Five or six guys on that rifle hunt are going to kill the buck that all 120 of them wanted to kill, you know, and same with the archery, you know, one or two guys are going to kill the type of buck that 35, that 35 wanted to kill. So, uh, you know, it's not bad. I shouldn't say that. We do have, in fact, just this winter alone, I noticed a lot of great three to five year old deer that, you know, we had a, like we'd started this conversation with, we got great moisture. You know, we've had an extremely mild winter. Those deer are going to burn winter fat walking back up, migrating north. They're not in bad shape at all. They're healthy as heck. Those are going to drop good fawns. So, I mean, this year right here, the 14-15 winter um, was phenomenal on many different levels because, you know, the fawn crop, it's going to be a healthy fawn crop, you know, which I keep going back to recruitment, but that's the key to it all. And David, I want to touch on something you said uh, that I, I talk to people a lot in the conversations about elk and antler growth down here in Arizona. And one thing, as you know, is, uh, you know, when they're dropping their, their horns, their antlers, they have to be getting their body in good condition. And if the winter is too cold and too much snow in the winter, and you jump in at any time if you feel like I'm saying something that's that's wrong, but... I always say, you know, we want moisture, we want, uh, you know, snow in the winter, but we don't want it to be so cold that they have to really fight for food. And the most important thing for good antler growth is, well, one of the most important things is that they go into the initial growing season with good body condition. Can you touch on that a little bit? No, you're exactly right. I mean, 100%. And it's, the, th- the thing that I was saying about the 14-15 winter was, you know, it was a couple weeks ago was the last day of trapping season here in Utah, and me and my boy went out to pull our last line of traps, and he took his shirt off <laughs> walking back the truck because yeah. it was warm. Those deer, our deer have had green, and green's really important. 
Um, a lot of a lot of the deer depend on browse during the winter, but that spring green is really important before they leave these this southern winter range and head back north. And they've had green all winter long until last Monday when it got covered up with snow. So it was almost like the best of both worlds. Um, they had green all winter long. They're in great shape. It never really got cold. And like you said earlier, uh, more important than snow levels that you know people talk about winter mortality. They think about heavy snows and oh they died because of the snow. It's the cold temperatures that kill them. I mean, the Gunnison Basin in Colorado is a perfect example, 07, 08. It's the freezing cold temperatures. They got dumped with snow, couldn't get to any feet, and then the, but it was the cold that killed them. I mean, deer are tough animals, but they can they can live on minimal feed. But if if it gets down in the, in those sub-zero temperatures, it'll kill them quick. And so this winter's been really good as far as temperatures have been great. Um, green's been going good. Uh, I drive past the Arizona Strip on the on my way to work almost every morning, and it's looking awesome. We got a huge buckets of rain about three weeks ago, and then we got this snow. So, knock on wood, it's <laughs> it's early. It's March first, and there's still some times for thing. There's still time for things to dry up and burn up. But I think we're in great shape, especially on the Pontagon. I mean, as far as the health of our deer, um, it's it's going to be a fun year. Awesome. And you mentioned the Arizona Strip, and you also guide down on the Arizona Strip. Uh, let's shift gears just a little bit and talk about the Arizona Strip, uh, specifically 13A and 13B. Um, and you alluded to conditions being pretty good. Uh, are they better than pretty good, or are they just pretty good? Well, I'm I'm a I don't know. I'm an optimist when I got a hunter in camp or I'm hunting my own tag, but I'm a pessimist when it comes to this time of year because I, it's tough because it can change on a dime. But my gut tells me that it's going to be great. I think it's going to be a little bit better than great um, just because it's not necessarily – you look at annual precip falls and uh, the amounts that you get, your inches per year and things like that, and those are important. But on the Arizona Strip especially, it's all about the timing. Um, you could get buckets and buckets in July and August, and that doesn't mean crap. You know, it really doesn't. So it's just about getting those perfectly timed storms, which right now is awesome. We get another one in April, and I'll get back on your show and say it's going to be off the charts. You know what I mean? But <laughs> it's, you know, it's that's what it is right now. We're in great shape. So, And, and it, if I remember correctly, and the Arizona Strip is certainly not in my area of expertise at all, but I, I know like our northern units, 9 and 10 for elk. I mean, I know last year we had a big monsoon moisture. It was too late for the elk antlers, you know, to really to take advantage of it. But uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't the Arizona Strip have good uh, monsoonal, late monsoonal moisture and pretty good fall moisture going in uh, into the fall last year? They had great monsoonal moisture, and they had adequate fall moisture, in my opinion. Um, Okay. And so, uh, like I say, if it if one of those two is bad, then I don't care what happens right now till June. It's not going to be good because that that moisture, like I said, at the perfect time, is more important than the amount that they get. But no, I think, like I say, I think we're going to be great. Um, and, and on the Arizona Strip, with the archery hunts um, being in August, and then the uh, rifle hunts obviously being, I believe the B hunt is always first, and the A hunt is second. Uh, uh, you guide for uh, those hunts uh, and have in the past. Um, what what are some of your successes uh, in the 
past however many years with bucks uh, for my listeners as far as size, you know, width, uh, total inches, et cetera? Well, you know, I've been killing bucks on the Arizona Strip since 2004, but I was blessed beyond reason to have worked with Ryan and Muley Crazy, um, Ryan Hatch and Muley Crazy Magazine from 2003 to 2014. And it was during that time you know, I shadowed one of the all-time greats, you know, Ryan Ryan Hatch himself. And together we helped kill three of the greatest bucks ever taken on the strip. A buck we named Samson in 2004 that scored 295. A buck we had nicknamed Houdini in 2008. We killed him in 08 that scored 321. A buck we had named nicknamed Lucky in 11 uh, that scored 268. So, you know, I mean, it's you look back at that and you go, holy crap, those are giants. I mean, just as big as they get, giants. And um, but on top of those three, you know, Ryan and I also helped kill several other bucks north of 210, with many of them north of 220. Um, and so it's hard to it's hard to really compare that decade stretch of my career with anything that's going to happen after it because we, you know, Ryan and I were a great team, and you know, we still are if we ever get hooked up together in camp with a hunter. You know, it's it's a lot of fun, but I'm personally. I'm really, really selective with booking hunters on the strip because, you know, if the hunter sounds like they might not be too fun to be with, I, I won't book them. You know, I just really won't. The Arizona Strip is too special of a place for me. It's so much fun when you don't have to be out there, you know, and it can be flat out miserable when you're forced to be out there. And so, you know, I try to book my Arizona hunts with hunters who seem a lot like us, who will make it seem like we don't have to be out there, if that makes any sense. Um, yeah, and, and talk to me a little bit about that. I mean, in this game of inches, which we all play and we all, you know, want to be a part of, and, and, and I say we all because I, I truly believe whether someone is in the score or not, if they shot a big 280 buck, they would be telling everybody <laughs> my buck scores 280. So, I mean, tell me about people's attitudes, hunters' attitudes, your own attitudes, and how how – you know, my friend Craig Steele out of Kingman has a hunt for more. I mean, tell me a little bit about how you deal with the game of inches and, and you know, hunt for more. Um, you know, truthfully, I, it might be a pretty lame answer, but I, I really just try. I, again, I've been really blessed with I'm an outfitter. I'm an avid outfitter. We take, you know, 20 plus hunters a year in Utah and Arizona and stuff, but I'm also really selective. Um, and so the game of inches to me, I, I it's a love-hate relationship. I love going with a guy that wants to kill the biggest and the best because that's what we specialize in. Um, and I, I honestly have looked at it on different levels too. I, I've, me and my wife have even talked about it. I could probably take twice as many hunters, make twice as much money if I just wanted to book hunters and just go hunting and kill bucks. But to me and and the guys that work for me, that's not what we want to do. We want to kill the biggest and the best. Um, whether the biggest and the best that year is a 190 buck or a 250 buck, it, we want to go after the biggest that we know about. And having said that, not to change the subject or anything, but we always we don't always hunt the biggest buck we know about, but we always hunt the biggest buck we we know we have a chance at killing. Um, and there's there's a difference, and it took me a long time to understand that. And a lot of guys that maybe left with an unfilled tag because I wanted to go kill the biggest and the best, even though I knew it probably wasn't going to happen. I just couldn't stand not hunting that animal. But I realized that I'd probably say 2006 or seven that, 
you know, I'm not only wasting my time, but their once in a lifetime hunt, if that's the attitude you're going to have. And I think that's what they pay us for is our knowledge on and off the field, um, you know, while we're there and to make the best decision to make their hunt the best. So anyway, going back to the game of inches, I really do like the guys that want to go kill the biggest and the best. I really despise the guys that when they call me and say, hey, I drew a Ponscont tag, I want a 200-incher, and I, I'll, I'll refer other outfitters. I really will um, because it's it's not fair. I mean, we do it, and we do it every single year, but a guy that expects that, I've never had a guy that has expected that and had a great week of hunting with that guy. Sure. And so, I mean, is your perfect scenario a guy that calls up and says, look, I want to hire you because I know how much you love it, you live it, you breathe it, you die it. I know I know what it means to you. I'm going to take my tag, put it in your corner and say, whatever we get, we get. And let's just go after it. I know you're going to go hard. I'm going to go hard. I'm going to be ready. I mean, is that the perfect, is that what you want to hear from someone rather than someone saying, I want to kill a 200 inch? Yep, it is. And and I, I honestly, I respect those guys a little bit that call and say, I want a 200 incher um, because they know what they want. I just personally don't want to, strap myself with that guy because i just see it like i said i've been in it a long time and i've never had a fun week with a guy like that the guy that calls and just like you just explained that says i trust you i trust what you've done over the years and let's go have a good hunt those guys for whatever reason they seem to create a new level of luck within themselves and yeah i can't, I can't agree more i see it in you know the elk and and coos deer and bighorn sheep and you know i've seen pretty much every attitude there is that that you know guys hunting with me and it always seems the guys that are that are caught up on a number and caught up on you know some specific number so they can tell their buddies uh they never do as good their attitude's not as good they don't have as much energy you know they're 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 you know heck out of the gate and they just go like crazy for the first day but you know, the other nine days, they just, they, they slowly peter out. Whereas the guy that is there saying, I want to come and just enjoy the Arizona Strip, or I want to come and enjoy, you know, whatever unit, the Ponsagon or, you know, whatever desert sheep unit. And, uh, you know, when we decide to pull the trigger, we'll pull the trigger. And if we don't, we don't. And it seems like those guys almost always get the biggest trophy. Oh yeah. Without question. Like I say, it's, it's almost eerie, like I said before. They they have this different level of luck with them, and and I think it's just, you know, like you say, it's it's that the attitude they bring with them. Um, and I, you know, I've had guys with great. At, I had a guy last year on the Ponscon, one of the funnest guys I've ever hunted with before. And you know, he he was an older gentleman, and you know, he's just like, hey, I don't have to kill two hundred inch. Let's go have a let's go have a fun hunt. And about day five, we glassed up this great. 193 inch buck and snuck down in there and it was slow going because he was a little older and we got 180 yards from buck didn't know we were there and and i uh, get the camera set up and ready to film everything and he leans over the sticks and settles in and then clicks the safety on looks back and he says yeah let's keep hunting and i'm going holy crap you know and and i wasn't disappointed at all whereas another guy that would have been like hey i want a 190 buck and, and i get him on one and he doesn't shoot it i might have been a little upset you know Sure. This guy was just like, hey, in fact, another outfitter that I that I run around with a lot, Jake Bass with Timber Mountain Outfitters, he was just over the, the hill with one of his guys. We hiked back the truck, went and found them guys and helped them kill it. So, you know. 
Awesome. And it, it was a fun yeah. time. And then two days later, we shot a 31-inch wide uh, right at 190 buck that was just a – I mean, score-wise, it was a few inches smaller, but it was – he just wasn't ready to pull the trigger. And, man, I wish that guy would have stayed for the other two days of the hunt just to pal around, you know. I mean, those guys are just fun to be with. So the the attitude is, is everything, um, yeah. you know. David, um, uh, I want to go over some of the gear that you use as far as optics and, you know, maybe specifically the gear you use now, but maybe some of the gear you've used in the past. And, um, you, you know, as far as optics um, and speaking specifically about mule deer hunting, uh, what are your go-to optics uh, that, that you always have around your neck or in your pack Um and, and, and tripod for that matter sure. do you use a tripod do you not use a tripod yeah no i do and, and it's funny because people you know i think they correlate um you know guys like myself who might kind of be in the industry or or be involved with some hunting publications like we we ride for the brand and and we have one set of optics and my my optics box looks like a garage sale i got like a geovid swarovski 15s uh uh, vortex spot and scope, uh, like a tele, uh, spot and scope televid, you know, so I, I've got a little bit of everything and it's just what I've always liked, you know, um, uh, those like a geovids, they hang around my neck forever. In fact, I just barely ordered a pair of the, sorry about that. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> it's a potential client calling the book. <laughs> I, uh, I uh, just barely ordered a new pair of the Geovids, you know, they're, they finally put that button on the right side and they're lighter. And so I, that, that's kind of what I like. So um, now those are the 10 power Geovids. They are. Yep. Yeah. And, are and so those, those are your binos that you keep around your neck at all times. Yep. And they're, they're really handy um, simply because 90% of the time that I'm in the heels hunting, I'm with a client. And so I can throw those up, range an animal within two seconds, and I don't have to dig for a range finder. So um, it's just the best of both worlds, uh, really quick, really easy. Um, okay. I always have a pair of either my Swarovskis. Um, I just believe this or not, I won a pair of Zeiss Conquest 15s the other night at a, at a conservation banquet. So No way. Yeah. And I just barely put them on, mounted them up on the tripod mount and took them out yesterday, and they're awesome. So I'll have I'll have either the Zeisses or the Swarovskis in my backpack um, at all time for long range and long hours of glassing because there's nothing nothing better than sitting down and, and putting those 15s to work. Um, I used to just plop my 10s up and, and just hold them there, and that's great, but my eyes were opened <laughs> when I started yeah. using 15s. So. And then I have, uh, like I said before, I have the Leica Televid and the uh, – uh, Vortex Razor HD spot and scope, um, depending on where we're at and what we're doing. The like is actually a little bit heavier. Um, it's the older, uh, the 77. And so if we're packing in somewhere, I usually take the razor. And if not, then I'll take the like up. But um, I use a pair of Swarovski carbon fiber legs with a Manfrotto 501 fluid head. That's just what I've always used. It's it's a it's a little heavier um, than most guys are used to packing. But I grew up videoing stuff too and so i i like i always pack a video camera with me and i like having that extra stability when i'm videoing and so instead of packing a lightweight head and tripod i just i just i just bear the extra weight sure pack. now and you mentioned uh video camera what video camera are you using now uh, i have the vixia hf the g30 it's it's sweet too it's got a lot of neat features what optical zoom is that? Because I have the G10, and, and when I bought the G10, it was kind of the new, you know, small, 
great camera, but it only has a 10 power optical. What is the G? The G30, I think, has a 20 or maybe even a 30 optical. It actually has a 20. Okay. <clears throat> um, but I had a buddy show me something three months after I bought it. It's got an internal optical doubler um, in one of the settings, so you can have 40 optical power. And I'd, I'd bought a, a, ta- a detachable doubler to to get myself 40 power. And and I always I hate those screw-ons because they're they're uh, high distortion glass. The edges are always blurry, you know. And when he showed me that, I was just like, why didn't you show me that three months ago? Because it. So do you leave it on the 40 power? Um all the time or do you just in certain situations when a buck or a bull or rams out there then do you go to the 40 power yep. anything about 400 plus yards i'll go to the 40 power um or you know if i it, you know and you know how it is sometimes you get that one perfect scenario where the animal you're there and you're 200 yards i'll video for 10 minutes back on 20 and then i'll get some close-up stuff but the most important thing is is it's it's optical and so i mean it's crystal and it's almost got that that new four-dimensional look you know um kind of like the dslrs you know so it's a really awesome camera it's not super expensive i think it was only 1500 bucks um and it's not bulky like the old gl2s and and things like that and it's but it's not super compact it's just right i like it Uh, yeah i mean i i carry my um g10 i have a little pouch on my on my belt and literally just put it in there and, and carry it with me at all times. And um, I'm going to have to look into that G30. Uh, and is is the f- switch to flip it to 40 power fairly easy to get to? And can you go back and forth between just the regular 20 and the 40 fairly easy? Yep, you can. It's got a touch screen. It's got the flip open touch screen. And all you do is there's a button up in the top left when you're recording on 20 power. It's called function. And you hit the function. And then there's an arrow, you scroll down once, and there's a zoom, and then a two times. So, I mean, it's literally, it's bam, bam, bam. So when you when you shut the camera off and start it back up, it's on 20 power. If you want to get to 40, it literally takes, I would say, five, six seconds, and you're on. That's awesome. I, I just learned something right there. Um, and then, David, as far as digiscoping, are you primarily taking your video through the 40 power, or do you also then go and digiscope through your spotting scope? I did. Or or do you all do you have an adapter that adapts the G30 to the spotting scope? No. Or or okay. I don't. Just the G30. It actually um, it actually is about. You remember the old GL2s? It, yeah. It's it's between your your G10 and the old GL2s. It's not. You'd have to have a pretty beefy set of survey legs to set that up on your spotter. So when I do my digiscoping, I've been a long time advocate of phone scope um i've known cheston since forever and i mean i had probably had one of the very very first prototypes way back in like 09 when it was a bunch of pvc glued together <laughs> and so um anyway i use i use the phone scope a lot just on my digiscoping because it's not it's more than enough for what i need to do to get the data and get the information back for myself and for my clients. It's not, you know, it's definitely not movie quality stuff as far as um, top, top, top end. Uh, we'll definitely be using it on a lot of our productions, um, you know, just uh, promo DVDs and, and webisodes and things like that. But what I love about the phone scope is it's, I have my phone with me no matter what. It's always sure, sure. there. It's all, it's, it slips on so easy to either that razor or that Leica. Um, you know, I mean, I can take those memory cards out like that. It's just, it's a really slick, really simple, really, um, honestly smart 
attachment to have for any hunter because we all have our phones with us. And so um, I, I, that's that's what I do most of my digiscoping through. That's awesome. That's, that's, that's great. Um, good gear stuff right there. Um, let's shift gears a little bit here, David, and um, uh, give me your top three uh, units in Utah um, for archery uh, and maybe top three for a rifle. For what species? For deer. For deer? Um, well, I top three archery, for, I mean, it's really easy in Utah as far as the limited entry stuff because, I mean, we're, we have the Henry Mountains. <laughs> and so, um, you know, any... With that being the best, the Henry's by far the best. Yeah, I, you know, here's the thing. I've, you know, the success rate's really good. I think, honestly, the Henry Mountains, and this is a, I kind of a probably a stupid statement to make, but I think the Henry Mountains is the only place I know of that you could literally hunt. You you could you could literally hunt a different 180 inch plus deer with your bow every day of your season. I mean, you really could. The the buck to doe ratio is just insane over there. Um, there's only uh, I want to say 30, maybe 31 total archery hunters out there in that whole mountain range. Um, so and it, it takes obviously a lot of points to draw um over there in the henry's but you can also buy a conservation permit or uh, what do those henry uh conservation permits go for roughly you know they've they fluctuate a little bit every third year on the henry mountains the sandy ranch gets a landowner tag and so on the years that that sandy ranch has that third available tag to purchase it seems like the prices go down uh, to around the eighty to ninety thousand dollar mark, um, you know, this year the first one sold for a hundred and five or a hundred and ten thousand, if I'm correct, and the other one was ninety five. So there's only two available this year. Um, and is that for archery, or is that that unit wide for any weapon? It's unit wide, and you choose your hunt. So you don't okay. hunt all okay. of them, but um, you can designate it for archery, you can designate it for muzzleloader, or designate it for rifle. So. Okay, and so the Henry Mountains number one for deer in your book, uh, both archery and uh, rifle. Yeah. Uh, what are number two and three for deer? Well, you know, and I say these simply from a trophies trophy hunter standpoint, you know. Um, but the Ponsagant, it's right there, archery wise, uh, for for deer. Um, and you know, believe it or not, I probably have a hard time not looking at the general a, a general season unit for my third choice um you know maybe the pine valley the southwest desert or the boulder all three of those general season units are number one before going any further they're extremely crowded (laughs) there's a lot of hunters but i look at that and i go holy crap for as many people are out in the hills and for them to continually uh, over the last three years produce what they're producing um i mean they're killing some of the best bucks in our in the state off these general season units so it's hard for me to um, to maybe maybe say the Fillmore Oak Creek is a third choice, and you know, and that and the Fillmore Oak Creek, I think people are going to start hearing a lot about it in the next few years. They had a giant burn that went through there three years ago. Um, I mean, it was a burn that burned hot. It really scorched the earth. They had to go reseed, but that seed took off really good, had great moisture, and they killed some whopper bucks off there last year. So, you know, I guess to be fair and to keep it with the limited entry units, I'd probably have to say the Fillmore Oak Creek is a third is my third choice. Okay, and um, that's great information. And 
just to be clear, that general, the Utah general season, that's only for residents, correct? Non-residents can't go hunt general season in Utah. No, that's not correct. Um, okay. Uh, non-residents can hunt the general season units. What what it is is there's there's two separate drawings. There's a limited entry drawing, which includes um, the premium limited entry units, the Henry's and the Ponsagot, and then there's limited entry units that include – uh, the Book Cliffs, the Fillmore Oak Creek, um, the San Juan, and, and a couple others up in northern Utah. And then there's the general season deer hunting. And that's a whole separate thing. It, t- it has its own separate uh, point pool. Um, you build general season deer points and you build limited entry deer points. So there's two separate deer drawings you can apply for as a resident and a non-resident in Utah. Okay, I didn't know that. That's That's great info. Um, okay, let's talk elk a little bit. Uh, and by the way, I know that the Utah uh, regulations or the Utah draw is, uh, I believe, March 5th is the deadline. Yep. And if uh, people haven't, uh, this, this episode's going to air tomorrow. If uh, people need to get dialed in, they can reach you. Uh, um, where, where can they reach you, David? At the Hot and Fool at 435-865-1020. Um, okay, and uh, also, uh, what's your uh, contact info for North Rim, uh, North Rim Outfitters? Uh, they can reach me at northrimhunts at gmail.com. Okay. Okay, great. Um, let's shift to elk uh, in Utah. Um, I have 15 points for elk in Utah, so I'm starting to pay more and more attention. Uh, one of my trepidations or, or uh, you know, nervousness about uh putting in for Utah as, as an archery hunter. Uh, it seems like the season dates are always so early. Um, I'm kind of one of those guys that, you know, I've shot some big bulls and I'm a little bit spoiled in that. I really want to just hunt them when they're rutting. And, you know, honestly, to, to go hunt a bull in August maybe and sneak up on them or, you know, sit in a tree stand or, or what have you just to kill a big bull, I'm kind of a little bit past that. Um, so I've been hoping that maybe Utah's um, archery seasons would maybe move back a little bit. Um, and my other impression, I've only been on one Utah elk hunt. It was um, on the Boulder unit with uh, Steve Chapelo, probably a buddy of mine, seven or eight, maybe ten years ago. And uh, one of the things that bothered me a little bit on that was that there were spike and cow and archery deer hunters at the same time over the counter can you speak a little bit about that and give me your maybe top three elk picks for uh, for Utah for uh, archery? Sure. Um, you know, I, I really don't see that those overlapping general season hunts ever changing. I think they might vary from unit to unit. You know, I know they shut down the spike hunting on the mineral just last year, and it had been going on for three years as well. Um, so it's just the whole trying to appease both sides, the opportunist and the trophy hunter. And, and I'm with you. I, I've been so frustrated on that when I've had clients um, because of those same reasons. But even even taking it one step further, the thing I – you'll always catch rut on that last week of the archery hunt, but what you also catch is rifle hunters scouting for their upcoming hunt. Uh, sure. Utah's rifle hunts start the day after um, the archery hunts end. And so those guys, you know, that last four, three or four days of your archery season, 
I mean, I've just, they, they can be so crowded and there's people blowing on bugles and, you know, and they're not, they don't even have a tag in their pocket. So what I usually try to do is, is within the last 15 days of the archery season, I try to back off and not hunt the very last three days and try to get a 10 day time frame somewhere in there. Because if the, if it gets cold, if we get a good cold snap or, or something like that, those bulls will start piping up and, and, and it can be fun. But, um, as far as the top three picks, um, that Boulder Mountain Archery Hunt's just, it's awesome. <laughs> I love it. I mean, it, it's been, it's kind of, you know, the Ponce Gun's my favorite deer unit to hunt and guide on, and the Boulder's probably my favorite elk. I mean, it's just, you know, the unit has a great elk population as well as incredible genetics, uh, meaning you don't need an old bull to grow a giant bull. But even having said that, the Boulder has some really nasty country, which allows bulls to at least reach a mature age. Um, and it's one of, you know, it's one of the rare units that we guide on that I literally love to hunt all the seasons, but that archery hunts, it's pretty dang fun because you can get away from the crowds there. I mean, there's some nasty stuff on that Eastern side, you know, that a lot of guys, even if they're there four days early to scout for the rifle hunt, they're not going to hike down in that just to hike back out. You know, they might look at it from a distance. So. And and from a bugling standpoint, um, educate me a little bit. I mean, can you get into some pretty darn good bugling uh, in those 10-day windows that you're talking about? Yep, you can. And, you know, the, the one common, um, I wouldn't really call it a complaint, but I think one of the more common letdowns that I have from uh, clients that are in camp is not anything we've done, but when they draw a, even a rifle tag, you know, something that's supposed to be smack dab in the middle of the rut, even during that nine day rifle hunt, I mean, you're lucky to get two or three days of just off the charts screaming from daylight to dark all night long, you know, things like that. Um, and so I think when most guys get those tags, they think I'm going to have nine days of bulls screaming their guts out of just, holy crap, it's going to be awesome. And so we capitalize on the, you know, I can, I can tell, you know, we can tell by elk behavior and what's going on that, you know, man, these are going to be the days we need to really get after it and kill, you know? So, um, the archery season is is really really similar. That first good frost, which is usually around the first of September, man, they'll light up for a few days, just hard and heavy. And that's what another reason why I like to really be there. Then is you have that window to capitalize on the best that it's going to be with that archery tag in your pocket. So, I you know the best bulls that we've ever guided on the boulder, ironically enough, enough was an archery. A bull that was 403 as a typical and netted like 396 as a giant so wow. um we killed him on the archery hunt um, but we typically sell the boulder hunts like 350 plus hunts um but i don't think we've ever i don't think we've ever killed a bull off the boulder under 350 um but again also too i'm a firm believer in underselling and over delivering so if you know i just i'd hate to throw a number out there just to get a guy to sign on the dotted line and then you know have him be a little disappointed exactly so uh so the boulders number one and what what would be two three for archery only um you know shoot the beaver can be really 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 good um the unit as a whole was created for big bulls (laughs) there's a lot of rough country where a guy can get lost and have some beautiful high mountain elk country all to himself uh, the north end of the unit had a burn a few years ago that's cranking right now. Um, and the middle and the south ends of the beaver uh, have been notorious for, you know, harboring a boatload of cows, you know, making it a hot spot for when that rut does get swinging. So, you know, the beaver would have to be right there. Um, you know, I personally, I, I 
would probably kind of have a tie for third. Um, and it's both ends of the spectrum. I love the Monroe. Um, you know, there's the Monroe isn't what it used to be at all. I mean, there's, we, we killed a couple bulls off there last year. I think the biggest one was like 358 or something. Um, you know, the, the spike hunting that was there for three straight years did take a toll on the recruitment. You know, they're killing those spikes. So there's nothing to come up and, and replenish what was taken, you know? So, um, but it's, it's such a fun hunt. It, it is, it's beautiful country. Um, you can, I can almost take any age class of hunter, any skill level of hunter and have a phenomenal, just off the charts hunt. Um, as far as killing big, big bulls, it's probably not up there. Um, and, but like I said earlier, the other end of that spectrum would be probably the Dutton archery. Your success is probably, it's, it's gotta be one of the lowest uh, success for archery in the state, but there's some giant bulls at summer there. And so, um, while you might not be putting the odds in your favorite killing a bull when it comes to archery even with my own personal tags especially with my own personal tags i'd rather hunt 10 days and have a chance every one of those 10 days and fail and go home with a tag in my pocket um than hunt for 10 days and get that one small window of opportunity you know and, and that's the, sure. the archery season on the dutton is like that you could be hunting a giant bull every day you really could but it's a it's really not conducive to archery hunting i mean there's a few places we have and um you know where some pretty hard to get to wallows and um you know some things like that where we can maybe dial one in but it's a rough unit it's thicker than (laughs) thicker than crap on that north end and and it's big nasty tough remote country in the central and southern end of it but so that would probably be like i say i mean i if a guy called me with a road tag and wanted to book an archery hunt i'd i'd beg him to to book with us, you know, and, and same with the Dutton, but for two separate reasons. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, so that, uh, wraps up elk and, uh, uh, I know you've got limited time here. Let's cover, uh, sheep units real fast. I know you're a sheep nut like I am as well. Um, cover your three favorite sheep units in Utah. Well, there's only three units that a non-resident can apply, apply for, for desert sheep. Uh, this is Zion's, the Kaparowitz and the Sanderfell. And out of the three, the Zion's unit is hands down, I mean, light years above the other two in population, quality of rams, and quality of hunt, in my opinion. Um, we killed the new state record desert ram on the Zion's last year and officially netted in at 178. Um, you know, it's it's just, it's in a class of its own when compared to the other units. But I think what guys got to know before we go any further about desert sheep in Utah is what Utah's not known for producing many book rams annually. Um, you know, mostly due to smaller base genetics, to be honest with you. Um, but our sheep herds are growing. They're growing by leaps and bounds. As a matter of fact, in fact, the DWR just transplanted, I think 50 or so sheep from the Zions and took them over to some of the units in the Southeast portion of the state. Um, you know, so it's kind of like our sheep little factory, but every year it blows my mind that we, you know, we always, have hunters on the Zions or, or helping the statewide guy or something like that. And every year it's like, you know, we go back to the same ramming grounds and things and a new eight year old plus Ram shows up that we've never seen before. You know, so there's a huge section on the, of the unit on the Northwest portion that's wilderness. And it's actually, it's not legal to guide in or outfit in guys can hunt it, but you, you can't, we can't legally take, uh, hunters in there for guiding or outfitting um, and it's the Canaan wilderness area that butts up against 
Zion's National Park. And so there's a lot of animals that, a lot of sheep that, for whatever reason, they just go tram off and end up in a can, you know. Um, so there's a lot of sheep there is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. You know, I yeah. mean, uh, so as long as that keeps going, you know, cross our fingers, hold our breasts that the herds maintain and continue to provide a lifetime of healthy sheep, you know, in the Zions, they're starting to spread that. Uh, genetic around um the other unit the Kaparowitz is a smaller population of sheep it's a lot of fun to hunt um there was a 169 inch ram killed there last year which is abnormally high for the unit um most hunters harvest you know rams in the high 50s low 160s um and it's i like because it's close to home you know it's just out towards lake powell from Kanab, just east of east of the house here so it's i'm right between it and the zion so so, you know, it depends. Last year we had that statewide guy. We spent a few days looking for that 169-inch ram that was killed, and we never did find it, but um, we heard it was a lot bigger. Um, and the center fell. It's the easiest hunt between it and the Kaparowitz, uh, but the sheep can tram a long ways, and, and timing is really the key to success on the center fell. And personally and truthfully, I don't like the look of the rams there. They flare really good, but they're they're kind of wimpy, you know, they don't hold that mass and they don't have big bases to start with. So, but they're pretty, you know, pretty sheep. They got that big flare. So I don't know. Like I say, the Zions, in my opinion, it's about the only unit that a non-resident, you know, if you're wanting to kill a, a big, a bigger Ram Utah standards, you need to put in for the Zions. If you don't care and you want to put the odds in your favor, then put in for the Kaparowitz and the, or the Santa Fell. Um, they're pretty much sixes as far as draws. I think it was one in 3,500 on the Zions and one in 1,800 and one in 1,500 on the Kaparowitz and the Santa Fell. So. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, David, that's awesome. Uh, you spent a good hour here with us and, uh, we covered a lot of topics and, uh, I just want to thank you for, um, your years of professionalism. I want to thank you for, uh, spending time with us here and, uh, really uh was a real informational educational uh hour and uh, i learned some stuff and uh look forward to talking next time and uh uh you know um i just uh value your friendship and uh wish you the best of success here this spring Are you gonna chase any turkeys coming up yeah me and my wife both threw southern southern tags here in utah so she's all excited and i don't know if we'll get back down the white mountain unless you got an open spot <laughs> <laughs> well, I uh I don't actually have a spot um but I am going to go with uh Remza and, and uh uh Griegos and that clan. Uh that that place is hard to beat. Um but uh sounds like you'll be out shed hunting and and uh chasing some turkeys potentially and uh just wish you the best and uh thanks for being with us and thanks for your time. Oh, thanks for having me. Call any time. I'd love to Love to share what little knowledge I have with all your listeners and uh, wish you guys the best of luck too. Yeah, and I'm, uh, how do guys uh, follow you on Instagram? Uh, what's your, what's your handle on Instagram? Instagram, it's just Verosco. It's V as in Victor, I-R-O-S-T-K-O. Okay, perfect. And Facebook? David Verosco. Okay, and um, they can also reach you at the Hunting Fool or email you at what is it northrimhunts at gmail.com yes sir okay david thanks a lot thanks for your time and uh i'll be in touch with you okay sounds good buddy thanks all right take care you that was a great show getting to spend some time with uh hunting fool hunting consultant david verosco and northrim outfitters owner uh what a wealth of knowledge and just a all-around great guy great hunter 
Uh, I'd like to thank my listeners at, on the J. Scott Outdoors podcast for tuning in. And I'd like you to do us a favor. If you like what you're hearing uh, on iTunes, give us a review. Uh, subscribe, give us a review, and a uh, five-star review, and give us your comments. Uh, if you have any questions or, or comments on the show, you can also email them to me at jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. I'd like to thank you for tuning in. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram at jscottoutdoors. You can go to our website at jscottoutdoors.com. We also have a YouTube channel under jscottoutdoors. And uh, just uh, thank you for listening and spending your day with us. And uh, until next time, God bless.